0: nor things present nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's make uh, let's take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction on our study of the Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and you have superintended not only the writing of your word through the inspiration of the prophets and the apostles, but also you have overseen the transmission of the text so that it has been preserved for us down through the centuries, so that when we come to your word, we know that this is not just a book of human design, not just a book of human information, but it is a, a revelation given to us supernaturally from you and therefore it is truth it is absolute truth it is that standard by which we evaluate all things in our life and it is that standard that orients us to reality it is the anchor that gives stability and tranquility to our souls and it is upon the basis of your word that god the holy spirit advances us spiritually as we learn your word and rely upon it And as we make it a part of our lives and internalize it, then God the Holy Spirit uses that to transform us into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today that we might be encouraged, strengthened from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday I had lunch with three other men, all of whom were uh seminary graduates. One man has a couple of doctorate degrees, one from Dallas Seminary, one from another school. Another man is working on a also about to finish his PhD. And then another man who had was a seminary graduate and is the head of a of a local ministry. And we were discussing the uh current unpleasantness, one might say. Uh, in terms of the crisis that affects not only the United States in terms of uh, finances, but also uh, the situation that affects the entire world and the trends that we have been observing over the last uh, 30 or 40 years as the world has moved more and more towards internationalism and has moved uh, further and further away from the basic establishment truths that are laid down In the word of God, especially as this applies to the to the United States. And as we were discussing the current crisis and some of the uh, moves that the current administration is making to try to, uh, in their view, resolve this crisis, one of these men said, well, one good thing about this is as I as much as I hate to admit this, it has caused me to realize that I still had a level of trust in my soul for finding security And the stability of our nation. And I thought, well, that was a, that was a good admission because that's true for most of us, I think, that, that we look at our lives and we see the heritage that we have in this nation and we see the history that we have and we as believers and many of us have a tremendous love for the heritage of this nation, the freedoms and liberties that we have been given and we've been concerned over the last Hundred years or so as the trends in Western civilization and in the United States specifically have moved more and more towards socialism. And if one were to read Karl Marx, you would realize that, uh, he was not one of the Marx brothers. That he said that socialism is merely the first step on the way to communism. And communism is one of the most evil systems of economics and government in the world. And it is, uh, that is the direction that the world is moving. It is hostile to God. It is hostile to everything that is taught in the Word of God. And as we in the United States and in Western civilization as a whole move more and more in this socialized direction, we as believers will become more and more discouraged if we put our eyes on government if we put our eyes on politics if we put our eyes on the institutions of man and on men then we are doomed to disappointment and we need not be so distracted by government by politics by economics now that's hard for some of us include myself who are news junkies we live in the era era today of such massive communication that is it is easy for us to uh, run ticker tapes across our computer screens and have alerts coming in through email from numerous news sources and constantly being uh, inundated with things that are happening in the political sphere. And that can be a distraction to why God has put us here, why God has called us and his purpose for our life. And it is easy for that to get our attention off of eternal realities and our mission in terms of, number one, proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. Number two, being a witness uh, to God's grace in our life, to both the angels and to mankind. And number three, growing to spiritual maturity and learning to trust God in each and every circumstance. And so we need to be reminded and, and kicked in the rear every now and then that, that we should not put our faith and trust in man, because only the fool trusts in man, but blessed is the man who trusts in God. In light of a lot of these situations, I made a decision this last week that I've toyed with for about four months, and that is to switch the Tuesday night study on Kings to uh, Sunday morning and move Revelation to Tuesday night, because the things that we see in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, the ministries of Elijah, and Elisha are parallel to what is going on in the United States uh, today. We see in the Old Testament a time when uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was succumbing and had succumbed to the uh, paganism of that era, as expressed especially in the uh, worship of Baal. Baal was the thunder god, the storm god, the rain god, the god who provided Uh, that which was necessary for the crops to grow in in the ancient world. And he was worshipped in uh, the area now known as Lebanon, but Tyre, Sidon, Phoenicia, that particular area. But there were variations of the uh, Baal storm god, thunder god, Jupiter among the uh, Romans, Zeus among the Greeks was also the uh, storm god, the god who brought rain and fertility and fertility, of course, means prosperity. And so they were worshiping prosperity, much as uh, modern Western civilization, modern America, worships prosperity, worships material things. We've adopted uh, as a nation a worldview that is predicated upon uh, Darwinism and evolution, which means that the ultimate reality in the universe is matter. And so that which must be worship is matter, and that which comes from matter. And this, of course, will naturally yield a materialistic worldview and a focus on on material things as the uh, source of happiness and meaning in life. The modern view is no different from the ancient view. It might have a few little uh, different nuances to it, but it's basically the worship of uh, prosperity, material things as the means to happiness. Ro- Romans 1 warns us that when we reject God as the creator, then we will substitute the worship of the creature or creation in his place. Ultimately, man always worships something. No matter what the, uh, the secular atheist, the philosophical atheist, or the functional atheist in our world today say, they are just as religious just as religious as the uh, most devout uh islamic cleric or the most devout uh hindu worshiper or the most devout buddhist monk uh they are just as religious it is just that we have been uh, fed a lie that somehow atheism with the removal of god is just as is 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 not religious it is uh, neutral and it is not if the statement there is a God is religious then the statement there is no God has to be equally as religious and so the inclusion or exclusion of anything having to do with God or the Bible or spirituality or religion is equally religious and yet uh, those who influence the law and the courts in this country just can't seem to understand this basic rule of logic. And so we as believers find ourselves living in a world very much different from the one in which we grew up. Whether you're 20 years old, 30 years old, 60 years old, or 80 years old, you have seen a slide uh, Robert Bork called it slouching to Gomorrah. We quit slouching right after he wrote that book, and we started sliding quickly uh, toward Gomorrah. And we are continuing to increase our speed. But what else can you expect from the world? What else can you expect from worldly fallen unbelievers then to act like worldly fallen unbelievers? And the more they gain control over the institutions of our world and the institutions of our culture, the more they are going to target uh, believers in their opposition and hatred uh, of us because ultimately it is a spiritual war. And as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, but it is the, the spiritual forces of wickedness. It is We live in the midst of an angelic conflict, and Satan is constantly... Uh, attempting to destroy whatever God is doing within human history and to destroy the effectiveness of the word of God and the believer in history and in this age. And so we have to be careful not to be distracted by what he is doing, but to keep our focus upon God's word. And so there are many lessons that we can learn about this from uh, looking at the Old Testament, looking at the ministry of Elijah And Elisha. James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and that's important to emphasize because so often we think that there's something qualitatively different about these Old Testament heroes. And what James is telling us is, no, there's nothing qualitatively different. The fact is, actually, we have something better because as church-age believers, we have been uh, identified with Christ, baptized into Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. And we have far more resources spiritually to handle life than any Old Testament believer. The Gospels tell us that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament saints, but what we have is even greater. But we can still learn because many of the spiritual principles that uh, made them great and gave them tremendous courage and strength and stability in the midst of their crises are the same that apply to us with the distinctions related to the canon of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. That's part of the solution, as we'll see as we go to our key passage this morning. Now, in, when we look at this, the life of Elijah and going back to the Old Testament, I want to point out six areas in which we see a comparison between ninth century Israel and the United States. First of all, a biblical worldview has been replaced by a pagan worldview. A biblical worldview has been replaced by a pagan worldview. This nation was founded upon Christian principles. You can go back into the records, as I've done in the past, read the writings of the, uh, the Puritans, the pilgrims, the many others who came to uh, the shores as colonists in the 1600s, and they were coming here so that they could have freedom to study the word of God and to apply it. And many of them uh, were trying to establish a uh, Christian theocracy. I understand that, but but they all came from a framework of biblical thought. And this informed the founding fathers by the time of the, the American Revolution. And if you read their documents, you read court documents up through the end of the 19th century. Numerous lower court as well as Supreme Court decisions recognized that this was a Christian nation—not that it was regenerate, but that its heritage, its history, the the ideas that informed the thinking of those who shaped our institutions came from the Bible, and that has been replaced by a pagan worldview grounded upon Darwinism and uh, Marxism. And as you look at what has happened since the beginning of the 20th century, there have been more and more incursions from really a Marxist worldview. These you know, Marx and Darwin and Freud all uh, influenced one another. They read each other, and so they come together as sort of the unholy trinity of the 19th century that is bringing a hell on earth in the 21st century. Second thing we see is that just as at that time, we also see today that success and the worship of material prosperity was foremost. And this is the collapse of the markets, the, the, the failure of numerous banking and insurance businesses in the last six or eight months has awakened numerous people. But for many, it all it serves to do is to lead them into uh resistance against God. How can God let this happen to me? It hardens their heart against him, but there may be some who in their desperate hour of need are open to the gospel. Third, we see from the scripture that the trend of the sin nature, once it rejects God, is to create a false world and a false view of life. It's a fantasy world. Fools, Say in the heart, there is no God. Functional atheists live as if there is no God. And when they start making policy based on fantasy, then it will eventually snowball into uh, massive crises. Next year at the Chafer Seminary Conference, I'm hoping to focus uh, the conference on evolution and creation. Uh, I've already secured John Whitcomb, one of the co-authors of the Genesis Flood, as a speaker. And he's 85 now, so we're praying that the Lord doesn't call him home by then. He's very sharp, very solid. I want to get some other men in, and a couple of the men I want to get in have a meteorological background, and, yes, one of them is Charlie Clough. But what I want these guys to be able to do for for the conference is to show the relation of this whole uh, view on climate change and global warming that is shaping so much policy both in business and in government Today, and show that that's really grounded on an evolutionary foundation. And that connection needs to be made very clearly for people. So, when we start with a false foundation and fantasy world of uh, Darwin, Darwinistic evolution, that shapes our whole understanding of how the world and nature creation came into being and how it operates, the mechanics of nature. And the result of that is that when we start making policy based on that, uh, that false assumption, then, of course, it's, it's going to uh, create havoc in the world. Fourth, we see that life is viewed as disposable. The, uh, Hiel, who rebuilt the walls of Jericho, did so at the cost of his firstborn and his lastborn son, showing that there was just a callousness towards the value of human life. We see the same trends today. Uh, fifth, the result of religious decisions ultimately impact policy. Decisions, and so when the religion that dominates the culture is a false religion, a false view of God, a false view of reality, then the policies that come out of that are also false and destructive. And sixth, we see that those who stand up for absolutes and objective truth will be demonized, marginalized, and criminalized. And I was given an article this morning from uh, by one of the deacons. who came in. It was in the Morning Chronicle. And the headline is, The Military Again Grapples with the Role of Religion. And the thrust of this article is on how a group, uh, I just love the way they uh, the euphemistic titles that some of these anti-Christian groups have. It's the Military Religious Freedom Foundation is bringing a lawsuit against the Pentagon trying to remove uh, the influence of Christianity and having chaplains and that kind of a thing. This is an ongoing Uh, attack on the military that's been going on for a number of years continues to go on. But we're going to see that as the, uh, as the liberal left in America gains more, uh, uh, gains a greater purchase hold upon this, the culture, that they will gain greater courage and they will, uh, attack christianity and christians much more openly it's it's the whole process of gradualism and there were few that saw that that supreme court decision that removed prayer from public schools back in the early 60s was really the first step in a series of steps that is designed by those who are hostile to christianity to remove Christianity completely from the marketplace of ideas in America to marginalize it and to render it something that is just, just, those Christians can do what they do, but as long as they keep it in their church on Sunday morning and they don't let those ideas affect business ideas, political ideas, legal ideas, or any kind of educational ideas, then they will just, they will be fine. Now what we need to remember are Five basic principles. First of all, as long as you're trusting God, there are no hopeless situations. There's no hopeless situation. If God is for us, who can be against us, the scripture says. We never stand alone. God is always with us, Romans 8, 31. God is for us, who can be against us? God never leaves us. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Third, we always face Tests and multi-layered tests, and God uses the adversity in our lives in order to teach us to trust in him. That's what's going to happen with Elijah. That's what we've been studying uh, on Tuesday nights about how after Elijah announced to Ahab that there would be no more rain until he said so, God took him out of the picture, hid him away in a desert area on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and fed him, protected him, and God said he would bring him food by the ravens and that uh, he would get his water from the brook Kareth that, where, that was near where he was, he was uh, camping. Now, as each day went by, Elijah saw the water dry up and so he just as many people have watched their 401k's dry up and they have watched their uh, perhaps their jobs dry up and they have seen the economy of this nation dry up. Elijah saw that as well because when the believer is living in a nation under discipline, a nation that is operating on a fantasy, then the believers are going to go through the same tests and crises of everybody else, but we have a solution. We have hope. We have A God who takes care of us, and we realize that as we go through these situations of adversity, God is training us and preparing us for future ministry as he was doing with Elijah. Uh, Fourth, we realize that when we do the right thing the right way, the results may not always be what you originally intended or expected. This is exactly what happened with Elijah. Uh, Elijah did not know that God was going to hide him away for three and a half years, feed him uh, by the ravens, by the brook Hereth for a while, and then later take him into the heart of enemy territory in uh, Zarephath and there feed him by means of a widow. But God doesn't show us what's happening, what tomorrow will hold or the next day, for we are to live uh, one day at a time. We saw the principle that when a nation is under divine discipline, even pos- the positive mature believers will suffer by association. And we need to remember this is just a time to accelerate our own spiritual growth, and therefore that can be a source of, of real uh, joy for us. We need to be reminded of key promises that we find in God's Word, such as Psalm 56.4, and God, I will praise his word i want you to notice in these promises the centrality of faith and the centrality of his word that is what we trust it's not faith in faith it's not faith in sort of a uh, uh an undefined hope it's not faith in sort of a uh uh sort of an abstract change it is faith in the concrete substance and content of god's word and his promises In God I will praise his word, in God I have put my trust, I will not fear. See, when we live in uncertain times, then we are tempted to be afraid because it is a time when we don't know if we'll have a job tomorrow, if we will have the funds we need for our retirement, if we're going to be able to pay for the health care that we would like to have as we grow older, as we face certain Uh, Health problems, we don't know how we will survive. Well, we never do. Nobody ever has in all of human history, so quit worrying about it. (laughs) One thing we know for sure, you're all going to die. No matter what you do, no matter how much you worry, you're still going to die. You may die tomorrow, you may die in 20 years, but all you're concerned about is a little bit of time. So we need to focus on the Lord. Uh, another key promise is Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Many of us need to memorize this. Plaster it on your uh, refrigerator door. Uh, it is not the government. It is not your 401k. It is not any other system of humanity. It is the Lord that is your rock and your fortress and your deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is the verse that I base the whole concept of the soul fortress on. That God is our fortress, and He fortifies our soul with the Word of God, with His Word, and with uh, the doctrine that comes from His Word. Psalm 20, verse 7, says some trust in chariots; they trust in the military; they trust in a sound a defense; they trust in being able to uh, have the proper weapons at home so that they can defend against lawless elements. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, i.e. technology, transportation, things of that nature. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Our trust is not in these things. Our trust is, not that there's something wrong with those things, but our trust is not in them. Our trust, our happiness, our stability is in the Lord our God. And so, we came to a point last Tuesday night where I wanted to take us through several passages in the New Testament where we can focus on these principles and promises of God. How can we trust God, and how are we to trust him in the midst of these crises, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of uncertainty, when we are tempted to be afraid, when we are tempted to worry, when it's easy to succumb to panic, and when many of us have come to a point where we just can't stand to watch the evening News. the morning news, listen to the radio, it just seems like it's bad news all the time as we see uh, the erosion of our nation in numerous, numerous ways. And so we need to learn what the Bible says so that we can have and experience the real hope that is ours in Christ, not the hope in the political Messiah of today, but Hope in God that there is change and that change is going to come one day. And, of course, that will occur when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So we begin a little study of some promises in Philippians chapter 4. So turn with me uh, in the New Testament to Philippians uh, chapter 4. The circumstances of the epistle of Philippians, the circumstances are that Paul is in prison. Now, he is not... In the maritime dungeon in Rome, at this time, he is under house arrest. Acts 28:30 describes that Paul lived for two, year, two whole years in his own rented quarters, his own rented house. He was under a house arrest. He was watched continually by members of the Praetorian Guard. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7 says that he says, "Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart." And as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And in verse 13 he said, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, that's the praetorian guard, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. It's, see, his focus isn't on his circumstances. His focus is on Christ. It is our mission as believers To serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul is not in pleasant circumstances. He has a measure of comfort, a measure of freedom under house arrest, and his friends can come and go, messengers can come and go, and he has the opportunity to visit with uh, numerous people, but his freedom is still restricted, and he has no idea what's going to happen. He is going to go to trial soon, and he doesn't know if that will end with his death or whether he will go on. So we see that even in the midst of his crisis, in his adversity, his focus is on joy. A major theme in this epistle is that of joy. He uses the noun joy four times, and he uses the noun rejoice, the verb rejoice, ten times in this epistle. This is a major theme, that they can have joy in the midst of uh, calamitous circumstances. Now, the Philippians, to whom he writes, are, live in the uh, city of uh, Philippi, or Philippi as we anglicize it, but Philippi is in or was in the uh, area of Macedonia in northern Greece. Uh, Paul went there on his second missionary journey and established a small congregation there. And the Believers in Macedonia went through difficult times, and they were persecuted, and they were oppressed by the culture around them. Paul alludes to this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, where he stated that even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. He's just saying it wasn't easy for us physically. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. This is where he was uh, thrown in jail. And this is the famous verse in Acts 16, where the, uh, the uh, angel of the Lord appeared and released his chains from when he and Silas were in jail. And the Philippian jailer, of course, was quite fearful because he thought, of course, that they would escape, and this would mean that it would cost him his life. That was the penalty for letting a prisoner escape. And so the Philippian jailer said, what, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So it was a time when they went through uh, adversity, conflicts, persecution, and he says, and fears within. See, it's not a sin to respond With fear, that is a natural consequence of a sin nature that indwells within us. It becomes a sin when you act on the fear, when you let that fear control your decisions, when you let that fear shape uh, your thinking. No one who's ever been in combat would ever tell you that they were without fear. But courage is overcoming that fear and not letting the fear dictate your decisions. And so Paul is not letting the fear control. So he addresses uh, the Philippians from a position of strength, understanding what it is like to live in the midst of uh, terrible circumstances, circumstances that are shaped by adversity, by oppression, and by uh, persecution. And what we learn in Philippians 4 is that joy, real joy, real stability and peace in life is not determined by circumstances, but by a mental attitude that is grounded on the Word of God. To get that mental attitude demands discipline, mental discipline, mental fortitude. As believers to handle what is coming in this country, we have to become mentally tough. Not just bootstrap tough, but tough because we have devoted ourselves to the teaching of God's Word and it has become a part of us. That's what gives us the, the, the real strength in our In the spine of our soul, that we can handle whatever uh, comes our way and look at these circumstances from God's perspective and not from our perspective. Um, The initial command is to rejoice uh, in the Lord always. And I've just noticed that the computer has dropped all my Greek fonts, so you'll just have to, uh, we'll have to get around that. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says, and again I say rejoice, the repetition of this command, it's a present active imperative, almost all the commands in this section are present imperatives. Now the reason that's important is because a present imperative stresses something that is to be the normative, standard operating characteristic of a believer's life. Uh, When he shifts to a An aorist, he's making a priority out of that. But a present imperative emphasizes this is to be the day-by-day, moment-by-moment mentality of the believer. We are to have a mental attitude of joy. Jesus said that if his word abides in us, then we will have his joy. So this joy isn't something that is... Uh, separated from the word that is distinct from the word that is somehow divorced from a relationship with God, it is not just something we uh, create in our uh, in the strength of our own flesh, but it is the result of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Uh, Philippians chapter uh, four verse five then goes on to to say a second command. This is an heiress passive imperative. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, that word for gentleness is really misunderstood. I don't think that's a good translation, and it doesn't communicate the real significance of that word in the Greek. The word in the Greek for gentleness is a pekes, and this really defines a type of thinking and a, an, a, a, an objective, stable way of looking at life it refers to a considerate thoughtful or rational mindset that is able to objectively evaluate life situations without falling into either self-interest or emotion and panic so it is not gentleness in the sense of being uh, uh not being strong but it is a mindset of objectivity, and because of that, we're not going to yield to the panic and the pressure and the emotion of a situation. This is one of the great ways in which Satan can distract us from our job. Just think about what it was like in September of this last year when Hurricane Ike hit. And Ike hit, and we became glued to the news especially if we led up to it and if you had any kind of electricity uh, for the next week or so afterward trying to find out all the information you could about what was going on and we tend to get it, become addicted to getting all that information and all of that distracts us from the main issue at hand we can get so focused on all of the peripheral details of life that we're not doing what our main job is and some of you may have noticed that when you did go back to work and schedules returned to something normal uh, it it took two or three days to just sort of settle down into your day-to-day work and refocus again on your job and your task because everybody wants to talk about what's been going on and what's the news and do you have power yet and all of these other things that distract us, and so uh, that's the opposite kind of mentality than what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a a mindset that remains stable and focused, keeping a focus on the task that God has given us, what He's called us to do in the uh, Christian life. And the command that's here is to let this gentleness be known. Uh, it's the Greek word genomai for, no, uh, or gnosko for knowledge, something that becomes known. It's a passive. See, we don't tell everybody about it. They observe it. It's passive. And they watch us, and people around us observe what's going on in our lives, how we respond to the adversity around us, and they see that there is something solid, something stable, something that doesn't get ruffled, by the details of life. And so we are um, commanded to let that way of thinking be observed by those around us. And the motivation is the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. And then the positive command in verse 6, a promise many of you are familiar with, be anxious for nothing. Present active imperative. Again, this is to characterize our thinking all of the time. It's the Greek uh, verb merimnao, and it's the present active imperative here indicating that normal, normal uh, mentality. And the idea of anxiety here, or sometimes it's translated care or concern, is really the negative side of that word. It has a positive use, I'll show you in just a minute, but it has a, a, a negative sense, and that's what is being prohibited here. And it's really the idea of taking an emotional responsibility for something that we have no control over. And we look at the details of life and we begin to uh, panic that somehow they are going to destroy us or wipe us out, just as Peter did when he's walking on the water and he suddenly put his eyes on the wind and the waves and off of the Lord and then he began to to sink. Now Paul uses this word in a positive way. Earlier in the epistle in Philippians 2.20 he said, Uh, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. See, there's a positive sense in which we care, we're concerned about things in life. And and that's a positive side to it. But when we start taking emotional ownership for our, our control for things, that is when we start thinking that we control things and that God does not control things. So we are to... Be anxious for nothing. Not one detail in life is to cause us to be worried, concerned. But in contrast, we are to uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Prayer focuses our attention, our mind upon God as the one who controls history, as the one who controls the details of life. And we are to approach him in prayer and supplication. Now, before I conclude with this verse, I want to shift over to another key passage in the New Testament that talks about worry and concern, and this is in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10, this is a situation involving uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and the Lord is coming to visit. Luke, chapter 10, down around verse... Um, Verse 38, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. This is the village of Bethany, which is just a, just a couple of miles over the ridge at the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. Entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister uh, called uh, called Mary. Where am I? Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet, and heard his word, so immediately we understand from the also that they're both believers. They're both focused on the word, focused on uh, doctrine. And in verse 40, we read that Martha was distracted. She she let the details of life distract her and began to focus on things that some of us would. Uh, naturally focus on. The Lord were coming to your house. I think that you might, and I know some of you, I'm not going to call you out by name and you just keep a poker face. Uh, some of you would be just like Martha. You'd be so concerned with vacuuming and cleaning and, and getting everything just right because the Lord was coming to your house. Okay? So you can relate to this. And so she's so concerned about all the details in the house that distract her from From what's going on, she's distracted with much serving. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me uh, to serve alone? See, Mary understands that this is the Lord, and what he says is a lot more important for me to listen to than making sure that everything in the house is straight and squared away and that I serve him correctly. The important thing is his word because that's what stabilizes us in life, and so Martha wants the Lord to correct uh, Mary and te- have the Lord get involved and tell Mary to to uh, help him. And in verse 41, Jesus says, "Jesus answered and said to her, 'Martha, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. And see, that's the way a lot of us have become, uh, as, as especially when it comes to politics and economics and the details of life is." We're just so distraught over the current affairs and current events and things that are going on in life that we forget what the real issue is. And the real issue is our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, and our testimony. And so Jesus says to Martha, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good thing, which will not be taken away from her. Because when things get worse and when things, things get a whole lot worse the only thing that's going to really stabilize you if you get thrown in prison like Paul or if you lose your house or if you lose your job or if your health is gone the thing that really stabilizes each of us is our relationship with God which is based on the word of God and the spirit of God so we are to take everything One time somebody said, well, you know, there's a lot of things in my life I don't want to worry the Lord about. The Lord said everything, not the things you think are important, but everything. See, his capacity is large enough to handle everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything, every little minor detail. And so we're to take everything to him by means of prayer and supplication. Now, Paul uses both words for prayer here that we find in New Testament Greek. Uh, and the point is that he's saying is that, look, we need to pray. He By using both words, he's just emphasizing the fact that we need to communicate with God. That is what prayer is. It is the privilege of every believer to have personal communication and conversation with God, that because of the death of Christ on the cross, we have direct access to the throne of God at all times. We need to come in fellowship, but we need to bring to the Lord our prayers, our requests, our needs with thanksgiving. We're to be thankful in all things and for all things. And so we need to look at the trends of our uh, era and be thankful for those things that we know are not good. We are to be thankful for all things because there is a reason for these things. God is in control, and so we need to focus. Thanksgiving makes us focus on God's grace, for gratitude is the other side of the coin uh, to grace. And we are to let our requests be made known to God and to take those requests to him. And the result of that is then given in verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace there is a peace that comes from God. It's not bootstrap tranquility. It is a stability that is supernatural. Galatians 5:22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. This is produced by the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. So as we walk by the Spirit along with the application of the word of God, then uh, we have peace and stability, contentment, tranquility in our soul. And this protects us. The word there is translated, it will guard our soul. The Greek word is fruo, which has the idea of fortification, uh, preservation, guarding, setting up a garrison, setting up a fortress. It's that same idea we saw from the Psalms earlier, that God is our fortress, he's our rock. He is our defense. So what we need to learn to do on a consistent basis are the three steps of the faith rest drill. First one, first of all, claim a promise. We need to have promises in our control. We need to know the Word of God, memorize the Word of God. Jesus didn't use principles when he confronted Satan when he was being tested in the wilderness. He quoted Scripture. We need to know the Word of God. So we need to grab a promise a phrase, a statement in the scriptures, and we need to start thinking about it and mixing faith with that promise. And the second step, we think through it. We meditate on it. That's what the psalmist says, to meditate on God's word day and night. It means to think about it, to roll it over in our mind, to, to, to focus on what it says and why it makes the promises it says. And then as we do that, we come to understand the thinking that is embedded in the promise, those doctrinal rationales, and it leads to conclusions that I can trust God and I can therefore rest and relax and I don't need to be distracted with all of the things that are going on. In fact, I can sort of sit on the sideline And have a relaxed mental attitude about the whole situation and just sort of chuckle to myself as I watch how God is working in history and not become so subjective that I get wrapped up in the trends of history and what might happen to me. We need to avoid the self-absorption and become more oriented to God and occupied with Christ. Well, I, have, I want to go through about two or three more examples in the New Testament of how we handle adversity and how we claim promises, focusing on some of these promises. And this is the kind of thing that God was training Elijah to do while he had him at the Brook Cherith, and then later when he took him to Zarephath and he was living with the widow there. Because you can't get to the kind of victory Elijah had at Mount Carmel unless, first of all, you go through the process of spiritual growth, facing tests with the promises and the provision of God and realizing that it's only when we relax in God that he can solve all of our problems. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to, that it stabilizes us with absolute truth. Father, we're thankful that we have God the Holy Spirit who fills us, and enables us to understand the things of Scripture, and who produces spiritual growth. And he is the one that produces the fruit in our lives that come from the the study of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that looks at this and says, well, I'm not really sure how any of this applies to me, I'm not sure what the Bible has to do with me, that they may come to understand that that they can Understand these things only when they have a relationship with you that is based on faith in Jesus Christ. They have to trust in Christ as their Savior. Jesus died for everyone. He paid the price of sin on the cross that all who believe might have eternal life. Once we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are given new life. We're adopted into your family. We can then grow spiritually on the basis of what Christ did for us, on the basis of your word and the indwelling spirit. That we have, so Father, we pray that if there's anyone here without hope, uh, without an understanding of Your Word, uncertain about their destiny, that they can take a take this time to focus on Your promise of eternal life and eternal salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That on the cross He paid the price, paid it in full, so that by simply believing in Him, we can have eternal life. Father, we pray for the rest of us that have already believed that we might come to understand that there have always been crises in history. One thing we know for sure, we live in the devil's world, and the devil is always going to have a target on the body of Christ. And so it is our responsibility to learn how to uh, deal with those uh, attacks on the basis of your word and to relax and rest in your protection and your provision. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.